Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens. I'm sitting in the on-air studio at the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Dr. David Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who will be listening to the program. Again, we would love to hear your suggested topics. We want this to be as practical of a program as possible. And the best way to do that is to discuss things that are relating as closely as possible to you. And so we are asking you to share your suggested topics. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 732 Pastor, we have a number of questions that came in right at the end of last week's program or over the past week. So we're going to start out with those, and then we will jump back into our topic, Lord willing, from last week, which is that of the prosperity gospel and the word of faith movement. Let's start out with a WhatsApp question from St. Kitts Nevis, and this is in relation to, at the end of the program last week, a listener asked you if you uh, something to the effect of if you teach God's word and all the commandments as they are. Uh, they state in response to your answer, the commandments still stand. Even in Revelation, it says that. Uh, they state, you know a lot, but you mislead us in saying that the commandments have changed. God's law is perfect. Pastor, what are your thoughts? Well, either the person didn't understand what I said or um, he hadn't thought too carefully what was actually said. Um, the point I was making is that he asked if I, I teach all the commandments uh, of God. Now, I didn't know he meant specifically the moral law because the entire law of Moses, the Pentateuch, uh, all five books, is called the law in the scriptures. And uh, there are certain laws and commandments given to Israel under the economy of law that is not relevant today. I drew the attention that the dietary laws, the agricultural laws, for example, uh, even the dress code, you couldn't mix uh, like uh, different fabrics together. Uh, then there were certain rituals and ceremonies that are not uh, applicable because Christ has already died and there's no need to have those symbols any longer. And then even in regard to the civil life, there are issues like, for example, the, the Leveret Law, where you had to marry a, 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 your brother's um, um, brother, bar, brother's wife if your brother died and didn't have children. Uh, but when it comes to the moral law, uh, certainly nine of the Ten Commandments are uh, of the moral law incorporated into the New Testament. Uh, you can check the epistles and find that the Apostle Paul and the other writers uh, indicate or speak 
to the effect that these uh, particular moral laws are in place, in, like uh, uh, worshiping God, um, uh, not stealing, adultery, wit- false witness, all of those are included in the, the new covenant. The one that's not mentioned and the one that we don't teach is the fact that you have to uh, uh, worship God on the Sabbath. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear in Colossians a matter of conscience, and the Sabbath is no longer binding. And the reason why it is no longer binding is because the Sabbath celebrated the old creation, which is the physical creation. The uh, this, the Lord's Day, Sunday, celebrates the new creation, which is the new man that comes as a result of the resurrection. So, um, that's why he was trying to make some clarity on the matter. And then if you need more certainty on this, if you read Second Corinthians chapter 3, you'll find that Paul makes it clear that the old covenant has been put in place and now we're under a new covenant of grace. So I hope the person who um, are listening, I, I would hope that you study more carefully what I've said. I do think that we did a, com- uh, a program on the law already, if I'm not mistaken. And maybe at the end of the program, uh, Brother Nathan can give you the particular number that you can probably check it out. But we did discuss the, the law at another, uh, another program, and I think my position on that matter is very, very clear. Yes. Uh, again, if you at any time want to go back and listen to a previous episode of That's Truth, tonight is the 115th episode. You can go back and listen to all previous 114 at your convenience via podcast. Uh, the easiest way to do it is if you go to our website, radiolighthouse.org, scroll down to the second photo that you see, and right in the middle of that photo is a circle that says podcast. Click on that, and then you will see a link for That's Truth podcast, and you can look those up. Uh, there's a number in relation to the law, uh, specifically the Sabbath. Uh, we did in the fourth episode, one entitled The Sabbath, and uh, I'll skim through this, and if I see the law specifically, I'll share that later. You're listening to That's Truth. It is an interactive live call-in program, and we look forward to interacting with you. We're thankful for those who have already sent in their questions. You can call and be put live on the air, one 462 7420 you can WhatsApp or text your question, one 1454 Nathan, I did want to interject one other matter. The best book I've read, because it seemed to me that I suspect that this question came in from someone who has Seventh-day Adventist leanings. The best book I've read um, to answer these questions about the Sabbath is a book written by a guy called Dale Ratzloff, R.A. T-Z, L-A-F-F. He's an ex-Seventh-day Adventist pastor. The book is called The Sabbath. Uh, it is probably the best book I've read that deals with this matter and puts it in perspective. I would suggest that the uh, audience or anyone that's interested in the whole question of the Sabbath, um, Google um, The Sabbath by Dale Ratzloff, R-A-T-Z, L-A-F-F. Uh, I think you'll find his book fascinating, very exhaustive, and in the end, completely convincing that it is no longer applicable today. And we did do two <coughs> episodes on specifically the Seventh-day Adventist and comparing their official teachings with those of Scripture. And you can look for episode 43 and episode 44. Pastor, this next question relates to baptism. But before I get to the question, I have here in front of me a an article. And this is the 
This is the title, I promise. I'm not making this up. It says, Priest performs socially distancing, distanced baptism on baby using water pistol. And there's a photo of this, I'm assuming Catholic priest, uh, that is, has a water gun or a water pistol aimed at a child being held by a woman, assume the mother, and there's six feet between, and he's spraying this child. Mm-hmm. Pastor, why would someone believe? I mean, this is this is ridiculous. This is crazy. What, what is so powerful about baptizing infants that someone would go to this extreme measure? Well, when you showed me the photo when it came in, I thought it was quite comical. Uh, if you didn't show me, as I told you, I wouldn't believe it was possible that something like this could happen. But if you understand uh, Catholic teaching, Catholic doctrine, uh, they believe that baptism is really an essential part of salvation. And they believe that when you are christened or when you are baptized as a baby, uh, that is supposed to have some miraculous power where you wash away original sins. Now, if you believe that as a dogma, as a doctrine, uh, you'll see how vitally important that is. Um, so it's not surprising that um, that would be taking place within the Catholic setting because they do view baptism as an essential part of salvation and uh, you have to be baptized. Uh, that is true, by the way, not only the Catholic, uh, the Church of Christ believers, right? You've got to be um, you need to believe and be baptized. If you, if you believe you don't baptize, you're not going to have salvation. The, um, the Seventh-day Adventists, are strong advocates of baptism as well. As a matter of fact, the way they chalk up uh, numbers is not who make professional faith, it is who are baptized. So when they have uh, crusades or they have um, these meetings, what's important is not that five people came forward or 20 people came forward, it's how many people get baptized because they're going to report to the headquarters. And I don't want to say too much about that, but uh, everything is linked with how many people you baptize within a year or two years. um, your your increments, everything is linked to that. So that's why uh, so much emphasis is placed on baptism. It's not uncommon, for example, to meet a, a, a Adventist who has been baptized five, six times because every time he backslides, he's lost. And when he comes back, he has to get rebaptized again. That's the kind of uh, power that they view in baptism. Of course, that is not scriptural. Um, the thief on the cross was never baptized, yet he was saved. If you read Romans chapter 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul, in dealing with the whole subject of justification by faith, he reminds us that Abraham was saved like we get saved. There's no difference between how Abraham got saved and we got saved. And how did he get saved? Abraham believed God and was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham was never baptized. He was circumcised, but even that wouldn't help him. So I think um, it's the misapplication of the uh, the doctrine of baptism and we know that a believer um, should be baptized and baptized not because it's, it has any saving power in it but because it's an, uh, a public identification with Christ's death and his resurrection and it's normally the way that you enter the local church and become a part of the membership so it is important but it is not essential uh, for redemption and for justification at the end of last week's program, and I believe you were able to answer the beginning of this question, but to give context, I'm going to read the whole question. It says, mm-hmm. Good night, Pastor Murphy and Brother Nathan. You just spoke about baptism, having a right relationship, and having a right relationship with Jesus. Yet the Adventists teach that you have to be baptized to be saved. Where did they get that from? And I believe you touched on that last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I didn't. Um, and so then the the rest of it here is they had a uh, speaking of the Adventist, 
uh, this listener is aware that they had a virtual crusade for three weeks, and at the end of every message, the pastor was inviting persons to put down their name for baptism. Not once did I hear him give an invitation for salvation. Why are they leading people to believe that if they are baptized, they are on their way to heaven? Well, again, it, it depends on your fundamental beliefs, your theology, uh, what's your core doctrines, uh, and that is where the Seventh-day Adventists believe that baptism is actually part of being saved. Uh, if you believe that, you're going to push that, uh, and that's what they do. This is where I say that, you know, the Adventist message is a distorted message, message in the sense that the emphasis is never on Christ. You, you never, when you hear of Seventh-day Adventists, you either think in terms of the Sabbath, everything is the Sabbath, everything is the Sabbath, or everything is baptism. And that is part of the distortion, and it conveys the wrong message because the preeminence of Christ uh, is completely lost in this whole haze of this kind of teaching that they have. But once you embrace the doctrine that there's such a thing as baptismal regeneration, or it's essential to salvation, then you're gonna push this as though it is vitally important and, uh, and that's what happens. And that's how they measure true conversion, not if you make a professional faith, but if you were baptized. So that's the reason why they do it. And it is it's part of the, the, the message that uh, hides the true gospel, which is believe and repent on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And then, of course, after being saved, you want to be baptized to indicate your identity with Christ and his church. But that's substantially why they do it. They really believe it's, it's part of the essential uh, means of, of conversion. Pastor, there's a WhatsApp question that came from Antigua this past week, and I'm not going to take the time to read the whole forwarded message, but it's one of these uh, kind of like chain emails or chain WhatsApp where you, you receive a message and you're supposed to forward it on to uh 13 people and God will do something wonderful for you and at the end of it this individual who sent it says good night pastor in the name of Jesus amen pastor do you believe that what should we say about messages like this help us if you can God bless you and your family brother Nathan Look, I, um, I read the, the complete message that was sent and basically the summary of it is that this lady was sick she had a dream the lord told us to drink water she drank water she got she got healthy and then uh the lord left a note uh besides saying that jesus is the true living god and now you're supposed to send this same message to 13 people and then she says that a policeman um got it and uh he sent it to 13 people as a result 13 days later he got promoted another guy got it and uh what happened is that he didn't follow it on and he had 13 days of tremendous trouble and then it, it tells you basically that if you were to send this to 13 people uh, you're going to have blessings and if you send it in 13 minutes for sure uh, after seven days you'll get all that you wish now this is bogus this is this is this is almost like shamanism this is this is a cult um, has nothing to do with Christianity. Um, several things that bother me about it um, that I would just point out here quite quite frankly. There's no need for me to send a, a letter saying that Jesus Christ is a true and living God. I will tell people, go to Scripture. There's more there in Scripture. And if uh, uh, just sending a letter saying that Jesus Christ is a living God is going gonna, is gonna to be miraculous, uh, is this more powerful than the Bible itself, which says so much more about him? Not only is he a living God, that he's a Savior, etc., etc. So it doesn't make sense that God would ask 
ask you to send a letter uh, telling that Jesus Christ is a living God when the Bible is what you would advise people to read because they give you a fuller um, story of who he is and uh, explain his character and his nature and his work. So that, that bothers me. In, in, in the, and then this, this 13 days and 13 blessings, again, that song more magical to me and more dealing in the realm of uh, false metaf- um, metaphysical um, dogma than actually dealing in, in biblical Christianity. And then there's something else. Uh, in the same thing, the lady said that the, the Lord said these words, sorry for disturbing you, uh, I am the Lord. Now, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to seem facetious, but to be very honest with you, that to my mind was the most amusing, pathetic statement ever made. So God becomes some kind of a, um, uh, yeah, he's kind of an apologetic uh, God that uh, is a sycophant that if you if you do what he says and he doesn't want to interrupt in your life and he's apologizing for it. He's the Lord of the universe. He's a sovereign God. He doesn't have to tell you sorry. He wants to intervene in your life and give you a solution to your problem. He'll do that. So again, that is clearly not, not scriptural. Uh, and then the other thing is that after seven days, you'll get what you wish. That is never true. Uh, because you send a letter. God is not going to give you everything that you want because you send a letter. Uh, He's not even going to give you everything you want because you say a prayer. Uh, we get what we want if we what we ask for is according to God's will. If we ask anything according to God's will, He'll grant it. So uh, there's so many problems with this uh, kind of um, letter sent out, etc. I think it is just... Uh, silly. I think it is bogus. I think it is false. I think it is wrong. I think it sends the wrong message to believers. What we need to get people into is getting people into the Word to find out who Jesus Christ really is and then try to meet the conditions under which prayer would be answered so we get answered to our prayer, but not some kind of a magic paper that we send out to people and because they send it to 13 other people, automatically they get what you want. Uh, this has nothing to do with Christianity. And it's, it's, to my mind, it's reprehensible that anyone would suggest and use the name of God uh, to support such uh, a practice. I think it is false. I think it is wrong. It is almost heretical. And uh, Christians should not get involved in this kind of nonsense. Pastor, what about dreams? Uh, Is there a basis for God speaking to us in dreams? Do we need to be cautious about that? Well, the Lord cautions us in in the scriptures about people claiming to have dreams, and these dreams are false. Um, I have said this before. Um, In different parts of the world where there is unbelief, where the church is being persecuted, people don't have access to the Bible and don't have the freedom and liberties that we have, I do feel that those are occasions where God does some things that are out of the ordinary and and, and, and miraculous. I mentioned the fact that uh, even um, Rabbi Zacharias, uh, in one of his books, talks about Muslims being brought to faith in Christ in the Muslim world, where you can't profess Christ, you can't be known as a Christian, but many of the Muslims have been coming to Christ because they've had dreams, the Lord's appeared to them, they've, they've gone to people that the Lord has sent them to have given the gospel. So I don't discount the possibility that uh, something like this could happen supernaturally. But uh, we've got to be very, very cautious because the ordinary way that God deals with us is to His Word. He speaks to us through His Word because the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And we don't have to depend on these extra-biblical means of revelation for God to speak to us. We need to get to a good church or a good place where God can speak to us or listen to a good Christian program so that 
that God could speak to us. But I'm very, very leery uh, of this, uh, this dreams that people are always talking about. So, matter of fact, uh, if I would ask Nathan to turn to a few passages of Scripture in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23. And I'm going to read several verses. Nathan, can you read verse uh, 25, 26, and verse 30? All right, verse Jeremiah 23, 25 says, I have heard what the prophet said, that prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. Verse 26, how long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? Yea, they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart. And then verse 30. Verse 30 says, Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that steal my words, every one of his, from his neighbor. Yeah. See, notice there that, you know, they're claiming that they had dreams, and the Lord is saying, this is just false. This is nothing real. And then the, the stealing the word, by the way, when, you, when you're offering uh, a false teaching, a false doctrine, you are withholding God's word from people. So rather than give them the word that God intended, you're giving your own word. So uh, clearly, uh, and then look up verse number 16 as well. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart, and not out of the mouth of the Lord. And then uh, verse 31 and 32. Verse 31 says, Behold, I am against the prophets, saith the Lord, that use their tongues, and say, He saith. Verse 32 saith, Behold, I am against them that prophesy false dreams, saith the Lord, and do not tell them and cause my people to err by their lies and by their lightness. Yet I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore, they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord. I don't think there can be anything much clearer that yeah. we need to be very careful with people who are self-proclaimed prophets and who talk about having dreams and visions. Uh, the Lord is here speaking to his people Israel, and he's aware that among the people there are false prophets who are uttering words that have no biblical and no divine sanction, and the Lord is condemning that kind of practice. So I would say to people that uh, what you need to listen to is the Word of God, get into the Word and prayer, ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten you concerning what God teaches His Word. If you do have a dream that um, you think that is somehow divine, how does that fall in line with Scripture if it violates Scripture or principles? scripture, it is simply maybe over eight or something happened, but that's not from God. Uh, look, uh, the Word of God is the final authority, it's the infallible book, this, this is, is inerrant, and it's given as a guide to God, guide to be, uh, guide of God's people, and it's thus saith the Lord. Anything outside of that is suspect, and we ought to be very, very careful not to be deceived. Pastor, a WhatsApp question from Antigua says, Good night, Dr. Murphy. John 14.28 seems to be saying that the highest has no equal. So why people worship a lesser God? Is that not breaking the commandment? Psalm 18.13, L also is referred to as the highest. Is not that so? Well, perhaps you can read John 14.28 for the audience so we have an idea the Text. John 14, 28, as I pull it up here, says, Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away, and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I have said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Yeah, I think the person there is, um, when he talking about an inferior God, 
uh, I suspect he's saying that Jesus Christ, uh, we worship Christ, so we worship it in free with God. That's the impression I got from the text. If I, if I am uh, anyway misinterpreting what the person said, then I hope you you just uh, send in something to clarify that. But here is is uh, what what we need to understand. Uh, remember that Christ um, became man. Remember that he humbled himself; he became the Son of Man. Uh, uh, in the book of Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 to 10, it says that he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but he made himself of no reputation became a, a servant. So he, in his position as a son of man on earth, uh, he has become a servant uh, to fulfill the Father's will. Uh, so when he said the Father is greater than me, he's speaking from the perspective that he is the son of man. He's, and that's where he uses that particular term. Remember that Christ has a dual nature. He's not just God alone. He's God and man. He's 100% God, 100% man. That's the dual nature of Christ. And on earth, when he was living on earth, he lived as a man, as a son of man. So he can use that term in, in, that, in that sense. The other thing that we need to recognize, however, is that even within the Godhead, there's a hierarchy. Uh, for example, in Corinthians uh, chapter 11, it says the head of every man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God, the Father. Clearly, there is a hierarchy within the Godhead. Now, when we talk about uh, um, Christ being God and the Father being God and the Holy Spirit being God, what we mean by that is this, that they are of the same nature, they have the same attributes. We're not saying that we're not saying that the Father is the Son, the Son is the Father, etc. That's called modalism. But what we're teaching is that the Son is the same divine nature of the Father as the Holy Spirit. We also call it eternal spirit, the eternal Son, and the eternal Father. They have the same nature. That's what we mean when we talk about the Trinity. We're not saying that within the Trinity, the Godhead, there's not some kind of an order. There is an order. Very, very clearly the Bible states. But that does not mean that Christ is inferior and that's where we have the problem uh, with the person right here, uh, that Christ is an inferior God that we worship because the Father wants us to honor the Son as they honor the Father. He himself said that. So we must render the same worship to the Father as we render to the Son because they are of the same nature. They are divine nature. That's what needs to be clarified at this point in time. So um, one needs to be, and by the way, if we had time, we can look at the deity of Christ and to show you that Jesus Christ is God. We can show you that he's called God several times in the Bible itself. We can show you that he has all the attributes of God. And we can explain very clearly uh, in the Scriptures as well that this uh, Son of God became a man to die in man's place as a son of man and uh, in that position he became a servant so clearly uh, as a servant he's living under the authority of God as a son of man so therefore the father is clearly greater than he is you made a reference to Psalms um, uh, what, what was 18, it? 8, 13. 13 could you read that yes let me pull that up Psalm 18 and verse 13 says the Lord also thundereth in the heavens and the highest gave his voice hailstones and coals of fire. Uh-huh. Well, clearly, the, the God, the Father, uh, speaking there is, is, is the highest. Nobody, no, nobody d- disputes that. But again, f- please remember that in the Old Testament, there is no clear doctrine of the Trinity. It's only as you move into the New Testament that that becomes very, very clear. There is reference 
to the Son in the Old Testament, there is reference to the Holy Spirit as well. Uh, but when it comes to the fullness of revelation as to what this means, it is only when we come to the Bible that we begin to understand that the, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That becomes very clear as this progressive revelation. However, we're given hints that within the Godhead is a plurality because let us make man in our own image. Let us. There certainly has to be at least two there. That uh, and A man was never made in the image of angels. So it cannot be God saying to the angels, let us make man in our image. <laughs> it has to be referring that within this Godhead, there's more than one. But we weren't too sure. Uh, it's not explained in any great depth until we come to the New Testament. Then we discover that there is a trinity where the Father is called God, the Son is called God, the Holy Spirit is called God. And this is not something that we have concocted. This is something that is revealed. And can we comprehend it in all of its fullness? We can. Mm-hmm. Do we believe it? We believe it because it's revealed. How we totally explain it, I don't know anybody who can totally explain it. Everybody's mind is satisfied, but it's a truth that is taught there. And it makes sense because uh, take, the, take the person of Christ. If he was just a man, uh, he could only die for man's sin. But he doesn't have any righteousness that is equal to God's righteousness, which is what we need. So as a man, he could die for man's sin, but he has to give, have the same level of righteousness that God has to satisfy God. So that's why the mystery of the Godhead, uh, the mystery of Christ, that he is both God and man at the same time, uh, makes supreme sense and falls in line with the biblical teaching and helps to explain uh, the whole doctrine of conversion and salvation, redemption, etc. One other thing I'd like to say, Nathan, um, look, our earthly father, uh, if I'm, I'm a son and my I have a father now I'm human he is human but there's a hierarchy where I need to recognize that he, he's not greater than me that he has a different nature than I have right same thing with the, the father the father is a divine nature the son of divine nature but there's an order that is recognized within the Godhead so I hope that kind of makes a parallel so when we talk about Jesus being God uh, we're saying that he's of the same nature and he's of the same substance or essence that God is. Uh, but we're not saying that he is identified as him in the sense that uh, he is some kind of modalistic form, that the Father changes the Son, the Son changes the Father, except that's not the biblical teaching. Uh, the Bible teaches that the Father is, is, is of the nature, divine nature, the Son is, and the Holy Spirit is. It's called the Trinity. And uh, perhaps we'll do a program on that some other time to, to show you where the Bible teaches uh, the, the Trinity in, in the Scriptures and that uh, the Son is, is uh, equal with the Father. A follow-up question or comment in relation to this. This individual says, there are so much questions. Isn't the word of El his voice? Psalm 33, verse 6 and verse 9. Let me read Can you read that? Yeah, Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breadth of his mouth. And verse 9 says, for he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. So what's the question again? Uh, maybe it's just a statement. What's he saying? Uh, there are so much questions. Isn't the word of El his voice? Okay. And then... Uh, well, in that passage, if I might say that, that the word there is the expression of his thoughts, and his command is a decision of his will. So God uh, has just a think and will, and the universe was created. Uh, that's the kind of power that he has. But then we learn in the New Testament that God spake, but he created through his Son. 
So in speaking, whatever he said, let there be light, his son was the one that brought the creation into order. That's mm-hmm. when we learn that. That only comes to us when the Bible tells us in the book of First John that all things were made by him without anything, him was not anything made by made, was uh, anything made. Uh, I think the person is probably suggesting, uh, and I um, might be reading in between the line and reading too much, that the breath of the Lord and the word of the Lord is referring to Jesus. I think that's what the person might be saying there in that passage, and I'm not too sure if that's what they, what they mean. But uh, if you read the text, the breath and the word of the Lord are synonymous because that's what you call Hebrew parallelism. So when it says this, the, the word of the Lord and the breath of the Lord, they're referring to the same thing. So it's not talking about Jesus there. It's just saying that God spoke, and the power which God spoke, uh, the world was created. And then we learn later that in speaking, the Son did, if God said, let there be light, the Son created light. If God said, let there be a Son, God created the Son, the Son created the We learn that later. So, uh, by divine fiat is how God created, and uh, that's what the Bible teaches. And that brings us back to the book of Genesis, uh, where it said, in the beginning, God said, and God said, and God said, and every time God said it happened. Uh, that's the power of God and the divine fiat by which the world was created. Speaking of the book of Genesis, here's a question that has uh, come in from a listener. Pastor, in Genesis spoke about the two great lights, one to rule the day and one to rule the night. But yet in school, they told us the moon got its light from the sun. Yeah, but I don't, I don't see any major um, either scientific or theological problem there. Uh, it, it, if the if you create the sun first and then you create the 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 moon and it reflects it, what's the problem? I don't see what the issue is. So uh, the problem may be that the person is saying that the, the the light from the moon was created separately than the light from the sun. But again, uh, I don't see a problem there, uh, and I'm not sure why there should be a question of that nature. We know that the sun, the moon, does reflect the light of the sun. But but I don't see any... Remember that when the Bible was written, it spoke in what you call phenomenal language, not in scientific language. Uh, for example, when it talks about the sun going down, the sun doesn't go down. We all know that. It's the, the earth that turns. But that's the phenomenal language of the everyday person. That's how so the that's Bible. not proof that the Bible is wrong? Oh, no, absolutely not. And that's where, by the way, a lot of these things that people try to make so scientific, if you understand that the Bible is using the language of the ordinary man, so that because only only we, we, we these days understand that. I mean, everyone spoke in terms of sun. We still speak of the sun going down. The sun doesn't go down, but we know scientifically the sun doesn't go down. It's the, the earth that, that turns, et cetera, et cetera. But because I say the sun goes down, am I am I heretical? Am I one? No, but I understand what it. But it's the language that we understand, and that's the kind of phenomenal language the Bible is written in, and that's why sometimes what seem to be unscientific. Uh, we got to get back. The Bible is not a scientific book in the sense that it, it, it details modern science. But wherever the Bible speaks on a scientific fact, it is accurate. Uh, it might be interesting, uh, by the way, that uh, people understand that long before man, you know, they were scary that if you went off and you sailed too far out to see you fall off because they thought you fall off the horizon. And they thought the earth was flat. I mean, uh, but long before... That uh, in the New T- in the Bible, the Bible talks of, of God sitting on this on this circle of the earth, and man should have known that the earth is not flat, that the earth is wrong. So that scientific knowledge that now we know, long before that was done, the the, the Bible had uh, explained that the earth is a circle, it's not it's not flat. But up until the 14th century, some people who were scared that if they went too far out in the sea on the boat, they just dropped down because they thought it was flat. So the Bible was far in advance in those matters, and then. Uh, 
is I, if we did a, a book on how the Bible compares to science, the Bible actually gave you the, the equation for pi. I don't know if you know that mm-hmm. the circle and the diameter when it was doing the the tabernacle. It's not the exact precise, but the same you get three point one four. You can find that there in, 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 in long before we we that was computed. So there's a lot that uh, people don't know because you know um, I don't want to say that, that people are not people who go into the book any longer. Uh, but there's so much in the Bible that uh, is there that is scientifically correct that uh, people who have questioned it for many, many years, when it is brought to light, they have a different opinion afterwards. It wasn't just the 14th century that believed that the earth was flat. There are still some people around today that are of that persuasion, but we are all entitled to our opinion. You're listening to That's Truth, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, online at org, And you can also join us for this program on Facebook Live, Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed and you can comment your questions. If you'd like to call and be put live on the air, you can call 268-462-7420. The phone line is open and available waiting for you to call. If you'd rather send your questions via WhatsApp or text, you can send them to 268-782-1454. Pastor, uh, we have one more question that has come in. And then we'll jump into our topic from last week, if nothing else comes in. This is relating back to a comment you made toward the end of the program last week. And it's going back again to creation. It says, briefly explain your comment when you said sometime that you cannot believe in evolution and God. And I think they were referencing the fact you made a strong statement. You said that you don't believe someone can be saved and believe in evolution. Now, the, the reason for that is this. The Bible is explicitly clear in both the Old Testament and New Testament that God created. God created. And God created by divine fiat. Okay? God did not create by the process of evolution. Uh, if you believe that God created by the process of evolution, uh, I don't see how in any world you can be a believer. You can be a Christian. I'll tell you why. Because evolution presumes that there's death before there's sin. Uh, that's the whole process. That you, you, in other words, man didn't reach to this stage. There were beings before man uh, at different stages that died off and died off and died off, and man evolved. The Bible makes it clear that death is a byproduct of sin. There was no no death before sin came in. So you have a theological problem if you believe in evolution. Uh, the other thing is that again, uh, how would God confuse a world for so long uh, that He's the one that created when in children fact they came to the process of evolution? And then there's no proof for evolution. Uh, there's absolutely none. It's zero. It's zilch. If you read uh, Darwin's Origin of the Species, you'll see how many times he uses hypothetical language, uh, a, 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 a pseudo-scientific language. And Darwin, by the way, didn't have the education of a secondary school boy at one that goes to A-level subject. That was the level of his understanding of science. Uh, the average school boy in A-level probably knows more about uh, genetics than Dar- Darwin did. So it was a very, very uh, a stage of, of where, uh, and by the way, he, everything he thinks was pure speculation, pure hypothesis. Uh, nothing has been proven. They're not intermediary, intermediary um, um, species. Uh, so if there was evolution, you will find in between species all over. You don't find that. okay? And then um, many times you find a whole 
um, almost a whole mountain of um, different species all meshed together, which explains the flood. flood. There's no progressive standard. That's all part of the imagination. By the way, the other thing is that these people have created men out of a tooth. I mean, it is so shocking when you discover uh, what they've done, even from a tooth of a pig. Uh, some of these people, like the Cormangon man, the Neanderthal man, etc., etc. It is total dishonesty. And even after it's been debunked, rather than remove them from the scientific d- journals and from the encyclopedias, etc., etc., they continue putting the same nonsense in there, misleading generation after generation, and uh, it is just unethical. But I think the problem basically is that uh, for them now to admit that the evidence is so heavily in, fear, in, in favor of an uh, intelligent designer, uh, intelligent God making all of this, especially now with the deciphering of DNA and the fact that the, the, the level of, of, of knowledge and the level of um, information that is so sequential that's in there that it, it's, it's impossible for that to happen. But now to retract and say that we were wrong, etc., it brings the whole castle down and they built this whole thing for centuries on this whole false idea and people's entire lives will be disrupted. And I think that's where they are at this point. But they're totally dishonest, and they're not prepared to face the facts. They're not even allowing Christian doctors and lawyers and different teachers to teach the facts. Uh, They are squelching the information because they've taught a pseudo-scientific doctrine for too long, and the whole thing is coming to its end. And uh, eventually, uh, I think they'll come to one conclusion. This just couldn't happen. And I think that is already the general opinion, but it is still being stifled uh, that this information is there and that the Bible um, and the biblical doctrine is, is, is sound and, and that's based on solid scientific fact and solid reason. Now, I'm not in any way promoting evolution, but Pastor, how would you respond to Acts 16.31? And this is where mm-hmm. uh, someone asked the Apostle Paul, he said, what must I do to be saved? And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Again, I agree with you that a... A mature believer, someone who has been saved for years and has studied uh, the Bible and has started to realize how everything fits together. But as a young believer, an immature believer, many of us did not necessarily have that full grasp of all of these biblical concepts. Mm-hmm. Uh, how Can you really make a statement as strong as to say that someone can't be saved and still believe in evolution? That is my judgment. I I make no apologies for making that kind of a statement because I think that's a fundamental issue at heart. If there's not a creator, there's no need for a redeemer. If there's not a creator, there's no need. Man never sinned. There's no sin whatsoever. Uh, so So there's no creator. There's no sin. So what is this whole thing about? Right, so it it, it it completely undermines every fundamental truth of Scripture, right? And if there's not a Creator, why would Christ have to become a man? That makes no sense whatsoever. So I am I'm just simply saying that when you weigh the the consequences of, of surrendering creation and understand how it intertwines with, as a matter of fact, if you go back to. Uh, the book of Romans, which I've been preaching for some time, and Paul begins to deal with this whole issue. <laughs> Paul makes it clear that Adam was a historic person, mm-hmm. right? If Adam is not a historic person, Christ is not a historic person, the whole salvation doctrine crumbles 
the moment you surrender creation and the human fall. And that's exactly what evolution does, okay? Evolution has no explanation for why man is the way that man is, and no explanation for why man is, 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 is desperately wicked, uh, that he's fallen, that he's sinful. As a matter of fact, evolution believes that man is still in a state of progress, and eventually will come to perfection. If you believe that, tell me, why do you need the Bible, why do you need Christ, why do you need redemption? Uh, so I think people make decisions and people, I think we're afraid of making statements that people might call us old and foggy and maybe obscurantist and, and maybe that uh, we are uh, dumb and stupid and ignorant. Those things never bother me. Uh, my main concern is that the, the Bible is the Word of God. I am totally, completely convinced of that. And every argument that I make is based on that premise. And I can't retract, I can't go back and I will not try any way to dilly-dally to ingratiate myself with people who hold a different position because to my mind, there's no other position than what the Bible states, and uh, that's my position on these matters. As you were answering that, I was just thinking about the fact that as Paul's answering this question, evolution wouldn't have been a prevalent thought. I'm not even sure if evolution would have been accepted by even the most secular individual in Paul's time. And so there would have been an assumption that there was a creator. So therefore, he wouldn't have had to start all those building blocks. And this is maybe more of a a summary statement and yeah. not a completely exhaustive. I, I would make a comment on that, uh, Nathan, is that you'd be surprised that if you um, st- read the book, The Twilight of Evolution by Le- Leon Morris, I think it is, Morrison, uh, he traces the whole history of evolution. And evolution didn't start with Darwin. It started with the Greek philosophers. Hmm. Uh, some of them, uh, yeah, I'm serious. Some of them thought, thought that uh, about man evolving from smaller creatures before. So evolution is not something new. It's just that Darwin was able to t- make it and blow it up. And the, 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 the Western world was looking for an excuse to get rid of God. And the reason why the Western world is looking for get rid of God is because the Western world do not, does not want to be a moral uh, uh, moral universe. Men want to be autonomous. Men want to live as they do. Men do especially when it comes to the area of immorality. Uh, that was the real... Uh, and drugs, for example. Uh, they want freedom to do as they please. And a god uh, puts restraints on that kind of behavior. So the Western world uh, was looking for an excuse to get rid of God so they can just become totally autonomous. It's called humanism, that man is the measure of all things, etc., etc. Uh, and, and Darwin came in at that precise time and offered what considered to be a scientific answer that you can explain how man got here and now we get rid of God. And that brought about, by the way, the drug revolution. It brought about the sex revolution because without God, there are no restraints. And that's where we are today. And the problem is that we've gone so far down that line that now the evidence is now uh, moving the other direction. we still got all these uh, people who are so sold on it, I've been teaching for so long, to actually turn around now and admit that this is what we're seeing doesn't fall in line with what is actually there. Uh, I think it's total dishonesty that is keeping people from actually coming to the fact of the truth. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The voice that you hear teaching is that of Pastor Dr. David Murphy, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church here in Antigua. Time in the studios and across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.17. Pastor, we have a WhatsApp question that has come in from Anguilla. Good evening, Pastor. We'll like to know your thoughts on why God is allowing Satan in and out of heaven. 
Well, look, I don't. I don't have any secret code into this thing. I have not privy to any knowledge as to why that's allowed. What I would say to people is that um, man is being tested. There's no question about that. The, the test began in the Garden of Eden. It continues now. And I think it is part of that test where man's character can grow, whether we obey God or we obey the, the adversary. Uh, a moral creature must be tested and I think that is an ongoing process. I don't know uh, why, um, you know, what is God's mind behind this whole matter, but we do know that he gives gives uh, permission for Satan to uh, try people. We see that in the case of Job, uh, where uh, Satan told the Lord, uh, you know, you build a hedge around Job, remove this hedge, and, uh, you know, Job has got everything going well. He's healthy, he's wealthy, Take away health, take away his wealth, and he'd curse you to the face. And God said, you think that's why Job is serving for selfish purposes? Let me show you that it's more than that. And he surrendered and let, he said, but don't kill him. And we know the whole story, the drama behind that. And that is a, almost like God opened a window to help us understand the mystery of why we go through trials. You know, Why are we serving God? Are we only serving God because of the good time and the blessings? Are we prepared to go to any trial to show people that we, we serve God even if things are not going the way we want and things are difficult? Uh, do we really love God for who He is? Do we love God for what we get out of Him? Uh, I think that's part of the whole process. So I don't have any um, other information in regards to that, but I do believe it has to do with the development of the character of the individual and testing people. And, um, you know, without testing... Uh, you can't really prove the genuineness of anything that's authentic. And Peter talks about that, the trial of our faith, that is more precious than, than gold. And of course, gold is, is, is put in a crucible, and by putting fire to it, the, all the dross is removed. And Peter is comparing the trial of our faith to something like that, that the impurities in our faith uh, are actually um, brought to the service and removed by God putting us through certain trials. And part of the those trials is the agency of Satan who tries us in different ways. Uh, it's interesting, by the way, in the case of Job, that Satan had power over the weather. You remember? That he brought a storm that blew mm-hmm. down the house. That surprises us. That they, and then mm-hmm. he brought the 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 uh, Sabians and the other. So he has control over people as well. And sometimes that's what it is. It's not that Satan goes directly, but he uses people to try you. It's part of the moral development uh, and the character of persons that God allows us to happen. And if you think about it, is if we had no trials in life, how would we develop our faith and develop our character? I, I don't know how else it can be done. But it's normally when we go through the crucible of affliction and we go through difficulties and we, we don't have explanations that our faith in God begins to grow because we've got to look to Him. And of course, uh, we encouraged by scriptures, we go through these trials, etc. That would be my explanation. Uh, as why this is allowed. You referenced that Satan had control over the weather. I've heard pastors say that God has used storms or weather to judge nations or to judge communities. How, as we go into hurricane season next week, we start June uh, hurricane season, how do you tell, is it our place? And if it is, how do you tell whether it's Satan in control of the storm that caused devastation or whether it's God? I don't know how to decipher that myself. All I would simply say is that the Lord sometimes allows Satan to do that, as he did in the case of Job. But also when we read the Psalms, we're told that he controls the weather, he controls the storm, he controls the hail, etc., etc. And we know in connection with the judgments on Egypt that he brought hailstones, etc., etc. And we also know that um, in the book of um, Ezekiel, 
that when Russia and her allies come against Israel, there's going to be a supernatural earthquake that God causes and hailstorms. So he's in control of the weather. So I just think that many, many times it's only in retrospect when you look back to see the results of something that you could probably say, well, this had to be the hand of God or this had to be the hand of the devil. But the thing we must uh, avoid, Nathan, is to, uh, people think that um, not that everything, you know, that God brings all evil, but at the same time, we must never come to the point to think that God will not bring a storm, He will not bring, a, he will not bring um, an earthquake, uh, because He is a moral God, and He cannot allow us to continue living the way that we are. And for 2,000 years, we've been living as though God doesn't exist. We've now come to the probably one of the worst moral states that we're in. Right is now wrong, wrong is now right. And people no longer have a, a moral conscience and uh, man is now seeming to be in absolute control. Nobody is listening to the moral stance of God any longer. And I cannot conceive of a moral God uh, who holds us responsible, not bringing some intervention, some act to cause us to wake up. Many times it's only when you have something devastating that people begin to reevaluate their lives. Take the coronavirus. There's no question about it that people, a lot of people have been, I'm told a lot of people have been saved as a result of this, as a result. People now thinking, you know what, I could have been dead. Uh, if you're 60 or 70 and you've got the virus, you've been through that, that period of time, I'm supposed when you come out of that, you're thinking more of your, your eternity and your life. So, but God controls everything. He's sovereign. But he permits uh, Satan, as we see in the case of Job, even uh, to interfere with the weather pattern. We know that. But to, to decipher which is God and which is Satan, I don't have that uh, perspective and I don't have that insight. Uh, I do think that what uh, the consequences of a devastation will help to indicate whether this is a hand of God or not. What's One up? other thing, well, yeah. I would like to say this. God does not bring these things indiscriminately. In other words, whenever it happens and it's an act of God, it's just... It's a reason why he did it, and we have brought this upon ourselves because we haven't repented and we haven't looked to him. We are living as though we can operate without God. WhatsApp question from Antigua. By the way, thank you to each of you who have been sending in questions. WhatsApp from Antigua. Good night, Dr. Murphy. You are making some sense. I'm learning a lot. Does the angels worship the Father or the Godfather, Son, or Holy Spirit? Well, if you read the book of Revelation, you'll find that they worship God and the Son uh, and the Lamb who has redeemed us. So clearly there is worship to the Godhead. Uh, again, I am not too sure why we, uh, I'm not too sure if the, uh, you know, this is part of the great mystery. Uh, we know that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have only been given some uh, window into understanding some of what is in heaven. For example, the book of Revelation is a fascinating book. There's some things in Revelation. We talk the, the, the living creatures and people surrounding the throne and God sits on the throne. We This is like God giving us a vignette of what is going on in, in heaven. But clearly in, in the book of um, Revelation, it is clear that they worship God who sits on the throne and the Lamb who would die to redeem us. There's no mention of the worship of the Holy Spirit, uh, angels worshiping the Holy Spirit. But being God, I would I would suspect that that would be the same. Um, I mean, they're equal. Uh, 
So I wouldn't have a problem perceiving that. But in terms of giving a particular Bible verse that says that, I, I can't find any. But going to the book of Revelations, it's very clear that they worship the Father and they worship the Son, and they praise the Father and they praise the Son. Uh, the mention of the Holy Spirit is not there. Thank you for those questions that have been sent in. If you have your qu a question, you can call. Be put live on the air, one two six eight four six two seventy four twenty. If you have a suggested topic or a question, you can WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454, or you can comment it on the Facebook Live video feed. Pastor, last week you begin a thorough discussion of the Word of Truth movement. If you aren't familiar with that, you may recognize the Prosperity Gospel. You discussed some of what it is and who some of the historical figures are that were involved in it. And I know you don't want to deal with all of that, but can you give us just a real brief summary of uh, what the Word of Faith movement is? Yeah, look, I mentioned that the Word of Faith movement really is basically a, a religious heretical modern movement that um, is taken over, quite frankly. If you watch TBN, uh, the vast majority of those people on TBN are the Word of Faith people. So people like Benny Hinn, um, 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 it comes to mind. Uh, we we talked about uh, last week. We talked about uh, Joel Osteen. Osteen. We talked about uh, Joyce Meyer, and uh, the biggest church in the world. Paul Show, pastor. Uh, Robert Tilton, uh, Frederick Price. Uh, um, these are some of the ones that come to mind almost immediately. But the key thing here is that. Um, it, it emphasizes the fact that, you know, we must be rich, we must be healthy, uh, we must not be poor. If we're poor, it's sin. If we're sick, it is sin. Uh, we have the creative power in our words to create our own reality. And uh, quite frankly, that um, it kind of also demeans God and makes God the kind of a bellboy that once you find out the secret code, and a secret law that you can you can plug in, and God is obligated to do what you want. Uh, basically, that's what it is. And but it is this health and wealth um, prosperity gospel. It's a false gospel. Let me say this. But that's in essence what it is. Uh, and I thought we needed to to deal with that because I thought that one of the questions that came in prior to it, prior to dealing with it, was in in line uh, with this same prosperity gospel. Uh. We will jump in in just a minute to the core doctrines, but let me just share a Facebook message that came in. Uh, it says, Good night, gentlemen. Just want to express my sincere appreciation for your program. I've tuned in on Facebook for some time and really enjoy. Please tell Pastor there is nothing to apologize for when speaking the truth and righteousness. God bless you both for your work. Keep doing what you're doing. God bless you both in Jesus' name. Uh, time across the, thank you for that message thank you for each one who is listening and is tuning in and let me encourage you I haven't done this yet tonight but let me encourage you to invite others to tune in to that's truth uh, there is still 30 minutes left in the program send a whatsapp message send a text call down the hallway call your family members even if they live on another continent they can listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org pastor what are some of the core doctrines of the word of faith movement or the prosperity gospel yeah. 
Um, I, I began, I think last week we began to talk about this a little bit and uh, not going to give all of the doctrines, but just select them, some of them, because you can't do an exhaustive treatment on this. I would recommend a book, uh, if you want to look at this more carefully. Uh, Frank Hanegraaff um, is a book uh, called on the Christianity in Crisis. Uh, he deals with this very, very exhaustively. I think it's a profound book, and he has a way of using acronyms that help you to remember a lot of the data that he, he, he brings out in there, but I think that's a very, very good treatment. of. Uh, so if you want to find out more about that, I would recommend that book. But let me begin to talk a little bit about these doctrines for just a moment. Uh, one, of course, is that there are anointed apostles and prophets today. Uh, the church need living apostles and need living prophets, and these living prophets and apostles we see revelation, and uh, these revelations are supposed to be shared with the church. And generally speaking, these revelations come to these prophets by Jesus teaching them some kind of a Bible study and the Holy Spirit giving them enlightenment. If you read Hagen's book, uh, Hagen uh, recounts that he had tutorials from Jesus. And one of the books called uh, I Believe in Visions, he tells you about um, these Bible studies that he has had with Christ. Uh, so they make a lot of claims. And then if you challenge them, on the fact that there are no apostles today and there are no prophets, they often offer you very dire warnings. Uh, Hagen himself said that uh, somebody who contradicted him fell dead in the pulpit. And Benny Hinn uh, said that uh, the day is coming when those who attack us will drop dead. So he probably has privy to information that I don't have. But that is one of the big areas of um, the, the, the Word of Faith movement, that they're living apostles and they're living prophets. And that is, as I pointed out before, this open a whole Pandora's box now to deception, because if you've got living prophets, um, what happens when those living prophets contradict Scripture? Mm. Is this fresh revelation? It's just like the, book, the Church of Mormons. The Church of Mormon would believe that they accept the, King, the, the Bible, but they say that there's a new revelation. That new revelation has come through the Book of Mormon. So anything in the Book of Mormon that contradicts the, 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 uh, the, the Bible, the problem is not a contradiction, just a higher revelation. It's just something that, you, that wasn't there before, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Same thing with um, Islam, with the Quran. Uh, obviously, Quran came 600 years after the Bible, basically. But they claim that this is a new revelation. So if there's anything in the Bible that goes against the Quran, the problem is that the Bible is corrupted, see? When you open that kind of a door, uh, there is no limit uh, to deception. And that's why I said last week, and I keep saying, there are no living apostles and there are no living prophets. The prophets and the apostles laid the foundation for the church according to the book of Ephesians. Once the foundation was laid, that particular uh, gift and that particular ministry was no longer because God has completed his revelation, so there's no need for prophets. So that's the first thing I need to state that is something very, very common with um, the, I've seen uh, advertised here in Antigua when they have been certain crusades, prophets so-and-so and apostles so-and-so. Mm. And uh, I, I, when I was in St. Lucia, um, they had this apostle, this prophet came out, et cetera, et cetera, and making all kinds of bogus claims that St. Lucia's better days were ahead and the country would be prosperous, of course. And when it left, uh, I don't have to tell you what that means, but uh, the prosperity that was promised has never come to pass because the island is still struggling, as all these Caribbean islands are still struggling. But that's the message that they, they give, and people are, don't, don't seem to call them out for whatever reason. 
But if you go into the Bible, you'll see there's no basis for the prophetic office and no basis for the apostolic office because the Bible is complete uh, and we don't need that. Pastor, we have a caller from Antigua. Thank you for calling and go ahead with your question, please. Yes, good night. Um, good night, sir. The question I have um, is that um, <clears throat> if a, a born-again believer trusting in, in Jesus Christ, um, sometime down the road, they get discouraged or disappointed and they, they commit suicide. Can they be saved or could they go to heaven? Well, if you want me to answer that question, you just said that they're born again. Okay, that means that they're regenerated. That means they're a child of God. That means that they have the righteousness of Christ, that they are in Christ already. For some reason, um, I don't have any explanation for it, but some people can have a temporary state of madness. I've stated on this program before that because a person commits suicide, it doesn't mean that they're damned. Uh, if a person out of insanity commits suicide, but they're for whatever reason, uh, I don't see there's any justification that that person is lost. If we are saved and we're saved forever, and God saved us uh, from eternity, he, he knew, and quite frankly, our names are written down in the Lamb's Book of Life from eternity. How then can a person who was born again, blood washed, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, placed in Christ, uh, have the seal of the Holy Spirit that guarantees his redemption, uh, he has some particular problems in his life that leads him to a point of insanity, in that state of insanity, he commits an act of suicide. How then is he lost? That makes absolutely no sense to me. Okay. If you can believe a person is saved and lost, I can see why you would reason that. But if a person is <laughs> genuinely, authentically saved, that person yeah. is saved forever. Thank you very much, Pastor. That's a very good explanation. I, 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 I agree with your, your explanation. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you very much for that call. God bless you and have a good night. Uh, the time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.35 on this Tuesday evening. And if you are interested in hearing more about the topic of suicide and what the Bible says, even assisted suicide and euthanasia, uh, you can go to the podcast of That's Truth and look for episode 23 and episode 24. Those are entitled Suicide, and the second one is entitled Suicide, Assisted Suicide, and Euthanasia. And you can listen to those two episodes for a more in-depth study on that topic. Nathan, I, I, the same thing that I was just talking about. I just remember a conversation I had with um, a believer about that whole matter who really believes that God would ne never allow to stop a person from committing suicide once he's a Christian. I don't know where you get that, quite frankly, uh, why a person would believe that. Um, and there are examples in the Bible, for example, of people committing suicides. Uh, you've got uh, the example of Samson. That was an act of suicide. Samson pulled down the building on himself in order to kill the, the Philippines, but Phil um, Philistines. But again, that was a deliberate act. That, he, that was uh, self-murder in the sense that he knew he was going to kill himself, but in the etc., etc. So I don't know where you draw the line. And the other thing is that Christians can make mistakes. Uh, I, I can become insane. I can go to a point of insanity where I don't know. So God is going to stop me from going through insanity. I don't know what I might do that might call that insanity. Maybe that I've got so many things bottled up in my mind that one in my mind just blows. I don't know what I'm doing. I, I'm going to I, I jump off a building. Uh, that's a more of insanity. So I think I think behind a lot of this, at the very core of it, when you think about it, people who say they believe in salvation by faith, actually have an element of works involved there that is something you do that's going to get you saved. 
uh, they don't understand that salvation is purely of grace. So I think behind a lot of these situations that how may you get onto the core meaning, it is what kind of life I live is it's really a work salvation at the very core of it. We have a hard time understanding how grace. How God can just save us by grace without anything we can do, say, or whatever. We have a problem with that because we live in a meritorious society and people are always judging us and always evaluating us by what we do. And I think that carries over into Christian life. And even though we say we believe in salvation by faith alone, by grace, in the lodging in the back of our minds is this hesitancy so that when we have a situation like this, we tend to bring that work salvation into play and I think that's where the problem really lies. I don't think we fully understand what grace is and uh, that God saved us purely on the basis of our grace, of His grace. Pastor, we have a listener from Nevis who uh, would like your explanation or your thoughts on this verse. Psalm 113 verse 3 says, From the rising of the sun unto the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. Is this verse not saying that the sun goes down? I believe this is going back to the fact that you were referencing the phrase. Again, my point I made at the beginning, and I hope you person listened very carefully, the Bible uses phenomenal language, the ordinary language of how, how, how men speak, etc. And uh, so that that is not in any way contradicting uh, the scientific fact that we know it's the earth that turns and that causes to seem as though the sun. We all know that. But we, we, we speak in that phenomenal language, and that's the kind of language that is used. Remember, the Bible is not written for a, a scientist. It's not written for a physicist, uh, a, a, um, a person who studies maybe uh, geography or whatever it is. Um, so what do, you, what do you mean by that statement? Are you saying that those people can't be saved? No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it's not written in the, the language of scientific language. It's within the language where the ordinary person understands. The phenomenal language that we speak about, we talk about the sun going down. We all know the sun doesn't go down. But that's the language the Bible writes in, etc. So I am simply saying that it was not written uh, in, in scientific language and scientific code that only scientists can understand. Uh, but we understand what that means. So I don't see anything contradictory there. I just think that we got to understand how the Bible is written and that the fact is written. I, I think I've drawn the attention to uh, another program that when the Greek manuscripts were discovered, the, 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 the New Testament language was discovered, uh, it was not classical Greek. It was just a, a, a different type of Greek. And they were thinking that maybe, maybe this is some kind of uh, scientific language or Holy Spirit language. And then they discovered when they went into the, the dumps and the garbage and started digging up, they discovered that the contracts and the letters that were written that people throw away were the same language that they were. In other words, it was the ordinary language of the man in the streets. It was what we might call today dialect, basically. That was the kind of Greek they called Koine Greek. It's not the classical Greek. Uh, and, that what, and that's what the kind of language about, because it is written to bring God's message to everyone, from the highest to the lowest. And if the lowest can understand it, the highest can grasp it. You put it to the point of the highest, and the lowest can understand, but you put it at the level where both can understand, that's the message. It's a message of saving grace, written in the language that the ordinary man can understand. While we're on that topic, Pastor, what must I do in order to be saved? The Bible tells us, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. The message of the gospel is repent, 
escape the wrath to come and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. When you repent of your sins, uh, God pardons you, God forgives you. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God pardons you, he gives you the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in you, he imparts Christ's righteousness to your account, but it's an act of faith. It's not because of what you do, what works you do, what church you join, whether you've been confirmed or whether you've been baptized. That has nothing to do with it. It's simply putting your faith and trust in what Christ has done. And by the way, it's not your faith that saves you. It's what you put your faith in. In other words, you must not have faith in faith. It's the fact that you put your faith in Christ because it's only what He has done that offers you redemption. He has paid the debt for your sin and he is able to pardon you. But you need more than your sins forgiven. You need righteousness so that you can deal with God on a daily basis because even though your sins are forgiven, you still have a sinful nature. But if you have a sinful nature, how is a holy God going to deal with you with your sinful nature? He can't even look upon sin. And that's where the mystery of the imputed righteousness of Christ comes into play where God puts Christ's righteousness to your account and deals with you as he would deal with his son. He sees you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is the glory, I tell you, of the gospel and the glory of the Christian faith. It answers the problem that people find very problematic. And that's where, if you only have to use reason and logic, the Bible makes sense if you follow the consistent message that's being uh, taught from Genesis right through, how God has solved this problem. Pastor, can you speak for just a minute to the individual who says, but Pastor, I've done that. I truly believe I got saved, but because of being stuck at home or whatever circumstances recently, I have fallen back into some horrible addictions for the sake of this uh, example, let's say pornography. And I do I need to get saved again? No, it's not a matter of getting saved again. I, I, I want to make it very, very clear uh, that when God saves you, he saves you forever. Okay, that needs to be made very clear. But everyone knows, every one of us are very conscious of this, that there are moments when people um, slide, backslide, people get involved in things they should not get in, involved in, uh, in moments of weakness, they do things, they do acts, etc., etc. That's a given. Uh, John said, if any man said he has no sin, we deceive ourselves. So there is clearly a problem that we have in the believer's life that sin comes in. In, in the case where you have the pandemic and, and people are in a close contact uh, in different situations and uh, out of boredom sometimes, I can see a person who has been, uh, for a period of time, um, being tempted. I can see that person revert I think he's a person who's had the victory over pornography in this uh, two months we've had. The enemy comes, and uh, I can see a person yielding to that. I, I can see that. Uh, I can understand that. What is needed is simply to confess your sins and to seek God's forgiveness and to put something in place to remove, to restore or to replace that. Anything you take off in the Bible, you have to find something to put on. So if you just stop doing something and don't replace it with something else positive, you're always going to revert to that. So you always have to put off and put on, right? So you need not only to um, ask forgiveness for that, but you need to find, to put something in place of that. Uh, so by the way, sometimes you might want to have somebody, somebody to hold you accountable. Listen, find a good friend. And this is difficult, very, very difficult, because you're sharing a part of your life that... Um, it can 
be devastating if it's leaked out. So you have to find somebody that you have real confidence in and share that and let them hold you accountable. Let them call you on the phone. Uh, you know, let them say, listen, I, I know you had a struggle last week. Uh, I'm going to hold you. I'm going to ask you specific questions. Uh, I think that would be very, very helpful. And then find a prayer partner, somebody who can actually lift you before God in prayer and ask God for help and for grace. And then get into the word. Thy word that I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And the word has a purifying power. Uh, our Lord says, uh, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. And the word sanctify means to make holy, to cleanse. And the word has an effect. Dwight L. Moody uh, used to put in the, I think he had in the fold of his Bible, God's word will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from God's word. Uh, getting to the word, and uh, but the answer is not being saved again. The answer is uh, confessing your sins, seeking forgiveness, and putting something in place uh, to avoid you falling back into that situation. But God's a pardoning God and a forgiving God. And by the way, if that weren't true, I, I think the church should close down because nobody that get, is a Christian is perfect. Not one single person, including the pastor and the priest and everybody. Uh, we are all moving towards perfection. Mistakes are made, confession needs to be made, and uh, God is a pardoning God. In the last 15 minutes here, let's steer back to the topic of the core doctrines of the Word of Faith movement. You were talking about the fact that they have believed in living apostles and the roles that they play. Yeah. The other other main doctrine that really is, is thor- thoroughly... Um, heretical, as I would say, and, and false, uh, is that they have redefined faith. Uh, and what I mean by that is that they, they, they see faith as a substance. And uh, <clears throat> really, that it, it, this is uh, just like you build a house out of material. They think that faith is like that God built the world out of faith. It's it, I can actually give you the quotations that these guys have made. They've given to uh, the word faith some kind of a materialistic aspect to it, but that is part of the problem. It's like a, like a faith is like a building block, and um, God is a faith creature that God created by faith, and the same way God created by faith, you can create by faith. And what God did, that God gave uh, words are the receptacle of faith. So by speaking words, you're putting faith into the words, and those words became power. So God uses faith. Um, faith, um, the words are like a container that holds faith. And by speaking that, that's how God created the world. So you today is like a little God. You too can do the same thing, and your words... Uh, you can use your words to create your own reality. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that more, but uh, take the what they call positive confession. And these people are very serious about this. I want a four-bedroom house. So what I need to do is to, by faith, say that I want a four-bedroom house. So I want a four-bedroom house. Say that until you believe it. And then visualize that you already have it. And what happens is that when you are saying that, hope is something in you that flies up to, to heaven, basically, and goes into the, behind the veil. And th- those words of faith are there, and eventually they uh, metamorphosize, and you're going to get your house. 
I mean, it, it is pure magic. It is more <laughs> metaphysical magic than it is Christianity. It's not faith in God, you know. It's faith in faith. Yeah. If you have enough faith, you can create your own reality. Now, that's where the problem lies because from Genesis to Revelation, faith is always faith in God. It's not the power of faith. It's the power of God that does, but they're saying that faith is what does the work. So God is completely displaced. So if I want God to do something, and by the way, faith is the only way to unlock the law, the spiritual laws. So once I learn this art of faith, I can unlock those laws, and God has to follow those laws because He's He's... He, he himself is bound by those laws. So God is like a genie, and God is like a bellboy that I can get whatever I want. If I want a house, I can get a house. If I want a Mercedes-Benz, I can get a Mercedes-Benz. If I want a yacht, I can get a yacht. It all depends on making a positive confession and uh, believing that, and, and God has to act. How does this house of cards not collapse? Because, I mean, how many people have really been able to visualize that four-bedroom house or that Porsche or that Lamborghini, <laughs> and it actually came about. I mean, wouldn't you at some point give up and and bad uh, word of mouth or whatever spreads? It falls in line with our culture. Okay. Our culture is a materialistic culture. Uh, our culture wants success. Our culture uh, is a culture of greed. The more we have, the more we want. This religion buys into that context. Uh, and that is why uh, these guys that make these kind of promises, they are driving Mercedes-Benz, have three or four, they might even have a Rolls-Royce as a, as a, a side. They are living in multi-million dollar homes. Flying they jets. are flying in jets that are $40 million. They're going all over the world. They have the designer's clothing. They have everything that they want. They're the ones that are reaping the, the benefits of this, see? And I could never, uh, whether save or not save, ever buy into this kind of nonsense. But believe it or not, it is something that uh, <laughs> it has taken over. The, 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 the uh, television has taken over. And by the way, some of these guys are raking $65 million a year. And then take the idea of sowing the seed as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, if I want to get, I give to get, that is totally unscriptural. Uh, the Bible tells me that I must give cheerfully, I will give with the right motive, I must give sincerely, uh, and I must give as God prospers me. I don't give to get. That is nothing but religious greed. But again, it is part of the mindset and the culture, and the religion is the same kind of religion the Bible talks about, that they will draw to themselves uh, teachers uh, who will... It, the ears are itching to hear what they want to hear, and the teacher tells them exactly what they want to hear. That's what it is. I want wealth. I want health. I'm going to bring somebody who's going to promise me health and wealth. That's the kind of message I want. I don't want to hear about repentance and hell and judgment, etc., etc. So I'm I'm now f sitting under the the authority or the the counsel or the wisdom of a person who tells me what I want. I don't want to be offended. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et That's where we are. A religion that is in line with my depraved nature and what my desires are. And the Bible warns that the day would come when that would happen. And we today are witnessing that. And don't forget, too, Nathan, that behind all of this enterprise is an infernal spirit that is deceiving people. And because this cannot be explained, except there's something supernatural.
something that is mysterious beyond uh, man's ability that so many people can be deceived. Uh, and you can see it, I can see it clearly, but others can't see it. That is where the deception comes in. Do you believe it's possible that a truly born-again believer gets sucked into this movement? I think anybody... Look, anything, as far as sowing the seed. Yeah, anybody is, uh, anybody, anything anybody's done, ever done, I've said, a believer is capable of. You get away from God, you can get so far away from God that you can do some things you never thought you, you'll ever commit. And I think a person can be misled and drawn into this kind of thing, and et cetera, et cetera. But I also feel, uh, believe this, that God will chasten a person like that and, and try to bring them out. I, I mentioned before that um, when a believer goes into something that is wrong, as his father, God will try to get a message to that person. There's some kind of conviction. There's some kind of word, some kind of individual. God would use different means to get the attention of that person. If that person doesn't yield to that, there's divine chastening, and the Bible warns about that. That is, uh, every son that God He chastens, so there'll be a chastening process. If that person doesn't yield to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit or the human agency that God uses to bring them out, and they don't yield to God's chastening, there is another alternative. The Bible says, God can cut you off. There's a sin unto death, and I say not. Uh, John said that you pray for a person who committed sin unto death, and that's where sometimes. Christians are cut off very early in life. Maybe they're driving a car and you hear a crash and you say, but I can't believe he was just here. See, because in divine chastening, if we don't yield to divine chastening, the ultimate uh, thing that God does is to cut off and he cut off very early. Um, God is very patient and very long-suffering, but his name and his glory uh, he's deeply concerned about. And while he allows a believer to go on and go on for a period of time, there comes a point where God draws a line and I think that's where the sin of death happens and God can commit to bring a person prematurely out of life. Um, but So I do feel a believer, it can happen in a believer's life, uh, and, but I do feel that God will use means to bring the believer out of that. And if that person doesn't yield, I do believe there's chastening. And if there's no response to chastening, then there's a cutoff at some point in time. For the believer who's listening and says, Pastor Murphy, I truly am a born-again, blood-washed believer, but I've gotten sucked into this, giving toward these ministries and sowing a seed. What advice do you have? My advice is very simple. Listen to the Word of God uh, rather than listen to any other person uh, that is saying to the otherwise. Go into Scripture and see if there's any basis for this kind of teaching. Uh, go into church history. Uh, if you don't take the New Testament and the examples in the New Testament, there's, there's nothing like that in the New Testament, clearly. So there's no New Testament teaching there. But in case you want to go beyond that, start reading about church history to see if this is a, this new phenomenon has any basis whatsoever, either in, in, in the Bible or in church history. And uh, I, I, would, I would say to you that you will discover that there's no basis for it. It's all part of greed and deception. And uh, I would say to you, cut, out, cut it off. Find yourself in a church that preaches the Word of God. And that doesn't necessarily mean our church, but find a good church where the Word of God is preached and the Word of God is expounded. And uh, I would suggest to you that you need to move out of this situation. Uh, the Bible says to come out from among them. There's a warning. There's a, there's a biblical doctrine of separation that when a church or institution or an organization goes so far away from biblical truth, the Bible says we need to come out 
and separate. Uh, and there are times when you need to separate from even a brother in Christ uh, because of some wrong or some evil, and there's no change in that person's life. So my answer to you is to leave that movement, find a good Bible teaching church, and uh, use your resources for the kingdom of God's sake in terms of missions or helping uh, the needy. But uh, don't stay in there. You're just sending funding and you're supporting a system that's only enriching the, the, the person who is leading that organization. Uh, I, by the way, uh, one of the things that I discovered here that some of the big churches don't have any missions. Uh, I don't know how a church can be a New Testament church and doesn't have a missionary program, but that's a shocker. Find a church that supports missions and believe in the mandate of the gospel uh, to carry the gospel to the end of the world. Pastor, in the last one minute, can you share some thoughts on this topic? I was recently talking with someone, and I know that some churches are starting to reopen under the meeting the protocols and the guidelines of the government. Uh, I was talking to someone who said, you know, the weekend seems so much longer, so much more relaxing when there's not services on Sunday. This must be what it's like when uh, you're a non-believer and you don't have church obligations on Sunday. Pastor, we've, for a couple of months now, have started to create habits how, what advice do you have for us to get back into the habit of attending church regularly? Well, I would simply say it's a matter of obedience. Forsake not the assembly of yourselves together. Let that be the guiding principle and rule of your life. Uh, and just remember that the church is a society. And what I mean by that, it's, a, it's, not, um, it's not just that you listen to on the radio. You need the social interaction of believers. You need to minister to other people. So it's not just about hearing the word, it's about ministering, it's about being helping people as well. And habits are only broken when we practice, so we've got to get back in the six weeks. It'll take six weeks of continuous going before it becomes a habit again. Simple, obey God and practice. Thank you for joining us on That's Truth tonight. We had a lot of interaction and we are very thankful for you interacting with us. We look forward to you interacting with us again next week as we pick up this topic and continue to discuss the prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement, uh, core doctrines, and additional topics along that line. God bless you. Keep your radio tuned to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.